Welcome to Misfits Theology Podcast, where together we're learning to question our faith in order to cultivate a deeper trust in God. Enjoy. Welcome to the Misfits Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriel Gordon. Today is an awesome day, as always. Uh, this will be the second episode for our Wire. Why I Left Church series. If this is the first episode you're listening to, uh, the Why I Left Church series uh, was inspired by a classmate of mine. Um, and in class, one of her classes, there was a survey taken about how many people were part of a church community and how many were not actively part of a church community. About 50% of the class uh, raised their hand that they were not part of a church community. And this is at a seminary in the Northwest. And and so we wanted to explore this phenomenon, why so many people had left a um, uh, institutional church community of some sort. And so we're interviewing people that are in three different categories. The first category are people that are no longer in a church community, um, and we're interviewing them about their stories and why. The second category are people that are uh, still in a church community but not content Um with that particular church community. And the third category is why are people that are uh, in a church community, but are uh, also content and glad they are in that church community. So today we have Ashley Davis on the podcast. Ashley, can you say hi? Yeah. Hi. Great to be here. So tell us what, what category are you in? Uh, that's a great question. I think that at some point or another, I've been in all of those categories. Um, a little bit of my journey has woven me through all of those different places. So I've got, uh, you know, my experiences through all of those categories. Wait, what, what category would you say you're in right now? Right now. Hmm. I guess, um, strangely enough, probably toward the last one Hmm. where, where, um, in a church experience and church body right now where things are actually pretty good. So <laughs> it would just, I'm, I'm saying that with a smile on my face because it's surprising to me given all of the other experiences with church that I've had. Hmm. Well, so, so let's get into that. Tell, tell us a bit about yourself um, and, and your church background, what denomination you came up. Did you grow up in church? Uh, is it something you found later in uh, while you went to college or just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Christian faith. My family um, comes from really interesting um, dynamic. My grandparents on one side of my family were Baptist missionaries to Costa Rica and Mexico. And my grandparents on the other side are devout temple Mormons. So my parents, um, as you can imagine, there was a bit of conflict there when it came to topics of faith and the way that we grew up. But, um, it was interesting for me growing up because when my parents divorced, um, I lived with my grandparents for a while. And so I was brought up in both like an evangelical free church and also a Mormon church. Mm. So I had, I came um, up with just some really interesting, uh, very different 
um, styles of worshiping, very different views of God. I came away with some very interesting doctrines. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, then as a youth was mainly in Southern Baptist churches. And that was where I sort of got my start in ministry. And so I, um, my own personal faith journey began when I was really young. And I kind of say that it's like God got a hold of me when I was very little because he sort of knew what challenges were going to be facing me in the future. And I experienced a lot of trauma through my childhood and throughout youth um, into adulthood, really. And some of that happened in church context. Some of it was outside of church context. But um, the constant for me has always been Jesus, has always been this abiding faith and relationship, even through all of that, that has sort of um, transcended the drama (laughs) and the trauma. Mm. So um, that has given me um, just a really unique perspective, I think, into where lots of different people come from, because I've been there too. And um, so when I got to college, I actually did major in religion at a state school, which is kind of unusual. Um, My college had an amazing religion department where the professors were all the uh, ministry leaders of the different campus denomination um, ministries. So I got to take like my revelation and apocalyptic literature class was from a Catholic priest. My Romans class was from, uh, I think was from the Church of Christ minister. Like, you know, so it was just, it was really interesting to get a really well-rounded education in that way from a state school, just a kind of a different perspective on things. And um, I minored in Greek. (laughs) I was the only (laughs) student in my entire college that minored in Greek. So that was cool. And so in college was when I started experiencing, um, I guess, the more adversarial side of being a woman in ministry. And that um, I can say more about if you want me to. (laughs) But um, it was it was really interesting. Um, Just some some of my guy friends like trying to get me fired from my ministry position because they thought that I was being sinful. Um, being a woman in in leadership. And so I was like 19, 20 when that happened. And um, I'm older now. So I I think it was actually um, to my benefit to experience that sort of conflict early on in my ministry years, because it, again, gave me insight into, I guess, just sort of the darker side of things that happen in certain denominations that are very prohibitive prohibitive of women ministering in the same roles as men. Mm. So um, that was sort of some of my college experience. And then I went on to have a career in Christian publishing eventually. And that's an interesting world in and of itself too. Um, And then down the line um, through just some various personal things that I experienced, um, kind of ended up walking away from the Southern Baptist tradition, uh, which was really, really difficult for me. And I um, am now back in church, a church with a more charismatic um, background. So I've kind of, (laughs) I've run the whole gamut. That is the really, really short version Mm. of things. So um, I I don't think I had a chance to tell you this, but, um, well, you might have picked it out from our conversation about our mutual friend, uh, 
Brock Bass. Shout out to Brock Bass for your listening. Hey, um, Brock. <laughs> so, um, I partially come from a Southern Baptist background. I grew up Assembly of God until about 15, and then from 15 off into college, I was in, in the Southern Baptist world. And I'd mentioned, too, I went to a Southern Baptist college. So, um, so I'm personally curious, how did you end up from the evangelical free church and, and, and Mormon church growing up to getting into uh, the Southern Baptist world? That was really my mom. She, uh, when she regained custody of us, we, she was um, involved in a Southern Baptist church at the time. And it was one of the, I think it was technically Southern Baptist, but didn't have Baptist on the church name. Mm. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of those uh, sort of incognito. Yeah. Um, but, but they had a really powerful ministry and still do. Um, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so that was where I was born and raised. And um sort of being outside of the Bible Belt in the Southern Baptist world, I think gave me a little bit of a different perspective than say, um, like the Nashville, Tennessee area where I ended up for about 10 years mm. after that. Um, but yeah, so it was it was primarily my family um, that drew me into Southern Baptist because I was a teenager, yeah. you know, I, I went where the car went, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so in, so you, what? how long have you been out of the Southern Baptist tradition now? Let me think. I guess it, it's been about two years, okay. two and a half years or so. Yeah. So, so I want to, I want to ask, um, how I want to ask a little bit about each of those categories. Cause you said you've been in each of those, each of those categories. So I want to get to the first category of, uh, what experiences, um, and what what part of your experiences or what led you into that um, no longer part of a faith community um, and, because you weren't satisfied with it? So maybe start with that first mm -hmm. category. Yeah, let me see. So my first um, sort of church dissatisfaction, I guess, um, goes back to being a teenager. And I it's really weird because like I think my my faith deconstruction happened when I was like 12. It's really crazy, um, just looking back at my spiritual development, that my deconstruction phase came early in my um, in my life, and um, and this is going to sound crazy, but it's true. And what it was back then was that I didn't like feeling like just another number. Mm. Um, the church was really large, and the youth group was big, and I was going through a lot of like just crazy stuff in my personal life, um, as I think all teenagers are, but, um, <laughs> there were, there were some really, um, interesting family dynamics happening for me at the time. And so I didn't like feeling like I was lost in the crowd. I felt that way so much as it was. And church was a place that I was really hoping to find a closer community. And I didn't have the language to express any of that mm. at that age. But that looking back and as I've reflected over the years, like that was really the key for me it was even that young, I was looking for family. I was looking for a place to feel connected. Um, there was so much fracture in my family of origin and I was really desiring that closeness and kinship and I wasn't finding it at church and I sure as, as heck wasn't finding it at school. Um, so I was really disappointed and I didn't have a good way of expressing that. And 
we moved into an, uh, a different church shortly after that within Southern Baptist um, world. And the youth pastor, I have to credit, his name is Sam Swan, and he is on the radio in Albuquerque on um, the, the local Christian radio station there. I credit him for kind of pulling me back into um, a sense of community at church because he um, he pursued me in a way that was was not creepy (laughs) and was not like um disingenuous like he was very authentic and like kind of chill about it you know and that's sort of what got me back um and especially being in a new faith community where i was again it was smaller it wasn't as big as the the bigger ones so it was good it had that going and i finally like started connecting and making some friendships there yeah um and so that's what initially like that far back and you know statistics statistics show that most people if they're going to leave their their tradition of faith that they grew up with it happens before they're 18. so it's really not unusual that that was my experience i think maybe it it was a little younger for me than some but maybe not like um but most of the stats do show that it's before the age of 18 so it's not really that far outside of the norm um and then in college I was, um, I mean, honestly, it was just because I was tired on Sundays. Like I was running myself ragged through the week with school and ministry. And so a lot of times what kept me from church Sundays was sleep (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like, you know, I had to rest. And, um, you know, then, then the most recent experience that kind of took me away from the Southern Baptist world was, um, I went through a divorce and that experience was very um, challenging, as you can imagine. And getting divorced in the evangelical world is kind of this really, um, there's a lot of taboo around it. There's a lot of people that don't want to talk about it. There's a lot of people that just don't know what to say. And so um, losing a faith community through that was really hard for me. But at the same time, um I feel like it was necessary in a way for me to complete a detachment from a system Mm -hmm. that had become damaging to me. Um, And I, you know, I'm not going to call out any individuals by any means, but um, there's just been a pervasive pattern of, um, you know, misogyny and white supremacy in Mm -hmm. Southern Baptist churches and that world. And I feel like finally at the higher levels of leadership, there's some things happening to address that. And so I'm encouraged to see, um, because I still consider these people my brothers and sisters in Christ. I I don't want to badmouth anybody or any church or any denomination. But at the same time, like we have to call sin what it is. And there's been, um, again, like just a pervasive pattern of protecting spiritual abusers and sexual abusers and all kinds of things. You can check out the Houston Star Chronicle series on um, the, uh, there's just been an enormous alarming number of sexual assault allegations within Southern Baptist churches. That's kind of its own topic. Um, I don't want to get us Hmm. off track, but it's there. And so like things are happening And to the credit of the denomination, I think they're finally making some inroads on these things. Mm. And I'm really encouraged because I, um, I love the church. I love the body of Christ. I would not be who I am without it for better, for worse. We're family. We're connected by the spirit of God. And, um, in, in that vein, you know, with, 
that that blood coursing through us, we have to hold each other accountable and we have to call out the hard stuff. Um, and sometimes that means stepping away for a season or for a long time. Yeah. And, um, and I hate that that's been my experience. I don't necessarily know entirely what all to say about it at this point, except that I am still always praying for my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters. I have so many friends, so many friends who are faithful, faithful to Jesus and filled with the spirit who are in those churches and that are doing the best that they can to be faithful in their following and to call out um, these injustices and um, to dismantle these systems of, of abusive power. And it's hard, hard work. It is such hard work. And um, I don't entirely know where I fall in that. Um, I've been more focusing on, um, on my own healing, finishing my doctorate, and just trying to, um, you know, figure out where God's taking me next. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I never want to be like overwhelmingly negative about the church, but at the same time need to be honest about the problems that exist and people who leave, um, they a lot of times have very good reasons for doing so. Yeah. So maybe just a little bit of clarification. When, when you left the Southern Baptist Church and you were going through your divorce, was did you ultimately leave because were you, were you were were you ostracized because of the divorce and that's why you left or was or was there another particular reason um, during the divorce that you left the Southern Baptist Church? It was it was a lot of factors. Um, I I was personally ostracized. Part of that was um, you know certain individuals that you know, for varying reasons, but some of that was me too. Like I was isolating myself because mm. I had had such a deep wounding and I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know who could care for me. And thankfully I, um, landed in a faith community that was able to handle the messiness of my life at that point and the, that were able to, um, you know, minister to me when I was always the one doing the ministering before. And so, um, but there also, there were a lot of things like, um, politically, there were a lot of things that I was seeing, um, you know, not necessarily in, um, you know, certain individuals here, but there were others that just really did not seem to understand, um, there's, there's so much, there's a huge dynamic and I'm still really doing a lot of learning around white supremacy and how that it affects all of our interactions in this country, politically, faith, um, all across the board. And I was at a point for myself um, where I wasn't really seeing those things addressed in a way that was um, really, I felt like reflecting the heart of God fully in those areas. And um, the church that I ended up in was uh, one that's very purposely seeking racial reconciliation. Right. And so I did a lot of learning there. And, um, you know, so I think that was just kind of part of my personal journey with all of that at that time. So it's it was a combination of a lot of different things. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a lot to, to go through. Um, so it sounds like one of the questions we want to ask is... Um, the, the problems in your experience that caused you to leave church, um, are those experiences um, that that the church is dealing with 
on a on a larger macro scale. And it's not I I just from talking. Obviously, a lot of these things are um, the the white supremacy is pretty rampant in not just one particular church or but it's rampant within a lot of our country. And so, um, what was the um, was do you remember? And and it's fine if you don't. But was there a moment? Um, when you were, and then I'd like, after this, I'd like to move on to the the second category, but was there a moment for you when you just said, okay, I have to leave. I can't stay here anymore. And and what was that moment, that experience like for you? What were the, some of the things that were going through your head? Hmm. You know, I don't know that I ever had a moment that that just stands out to me. I feel like it was, and this is sort of the way that God works in my life. (laughs) He he tends to kind of take me through these slow burns, (laughs) Um, again, for better or worse. But um, I, yeah, I don't know that there was any one moment that stood out to me, but I do remember feeling the pain of others and because this wasn't just me there, I have many friends that have been through um, similar departures from their communities of faith in the evangelical world for different reasons, not for divorce, for lots of other reasons. But the um, I'm an empath. And so like when when my people are hurting, like it really like I feel it deeply. And um, it's just sort of that that that's that phase of life just has a lot of pain with it and you know pain it it can serve us in a way it can show us uh and be a sign to us of like hey this is a place in us that needs healing and um i've seen several of my friends do that they've they've taken all of that and it's become a source of healing and um and for me it has been too so it's served a purpose um but um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. But I don't. I don't know that necessarily there was like a moment of clarity um, mm. that came. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you hit on something important. Um, the experience of leaving a church community is devastating. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of trauma surrounding it, and I think you know whether it's for divorce or whether it's for whatever reason. Um, it's a traumatic experience and, mm-hmm. and I, I think, I think you also hit on this, um, you know, good can come from, from the bad, redemption yeah. can come out of, uh, the messiness and the brokenness. I remember, um, I was in a church in Seattle doing an internship and I was asked to leave about six months into it. And, um, it was, I mean, I'm still not over it and I'm Mm. still angry about it and I'm still hurt and I think at this point it's been two years but you know um there are a lot of good things that came out of that not because the the event of leaving the church itself was a good thing but um like this podcast for instance this podcast probably would not exist um or the Misfit Theology Club in general if it hadn't been uh for me being asked to leave that church so, yeah, so I think, you know, I think there's kind of a double-sided coin to this. We need to recognize that uh, it's a really painful experience for people to leave a church community. And I think there's not a lot of empathy around that. It's kind of my, mm. my general vibe. Um, uh, coming from a Southern, spe- specifically speaking from s- someone that's come from a Southern Baptist background and going having gone to a Southern Baptist college, um, when someone leaves um, the faith community, uh, in, in that particular setting, 
it I don't think there's necessarily a lot of empathy. There's a lot of why are you leaving this faith community or um you know, oh you're a heretic. So yeah, we're glad to yeah. that have you off and, and out of here. And, <laughs> um but there there's not a lot of empathy. So I think that's something that we need to recognize that there are like you mentioned earlier, there are good reasons for people that are leaving different faith communities, whether it's a particular uh, denomination or whether it's or whether it's just uh, a faith community in general um, but we need to recognize that I think we need to empathize with that um, and if we don't it's going to keep happening and we're not going to yes. you know, make any impact on it um, and then the, the second side of that is you know like I said there can be redemption and there can be healing um, absolutely um, and even past healing because um, I wouldn't Personally, I wouldn't say I've, I've healed from that experience yet, but but there can be good things that can be redeemed out of that. So um, thanks for sharing that aspect. Um, let's move on to the second category. So at what point were you, you were in a faith community, but you weren't willing to leave it yet? You were, but you, you were absolutely not satisfied. Yeah, um, so I guess that would have been like sort of prior to um, my exit. So I'm thinking back to, um, you know, just church that I was a part of throughout my twenties and early thirties. And again, I mean, these are, these are groups of really wonderful people um, that their heart I think is in the right place, but they don't always necessarily recognize the difference between intentions and impact. And so, um, you know, the, the churches that I was a part of, um, you know, that it, it kind of came down to more the role of women and what we were allowed or not allowed to do. And that was where a lot of my dissatisfaction came from. I was one of the most educated people in my church, but yet still wasn't allowed to preach or allowed to teach. Like there were just certain things that like, if I even had an opportunity to speak, it was like, okay, well, we have to be sure that you're not preaching. And I'm like, okay, well then can you give me some ideas about what is the difference? <laughs> what What's okay for me to say as a woman or not? And um, I was I was very, very um, embedded in this culture at that time. And so I didn't do a lot of challenging. Um, my livelihood literally depended on kind of falling into line and just sucking it up and, okay, push down the, dissatis the dissatisfaction, just keep going. And I did that for a long time. And I think, um, you know, there were, there were opportunities that God brought to me in that and um, that it, that still were redeemed, but um, it was really difficult for me. Um, and uh, I, I guess like that would be a large part of the dissatisfaction for me around those was um, what what women were allowed to do. Hmm. I'm gonna pause right here because my son just came into the room. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. We can edit this. Okay. Yeah, I can give me editing. one second. I'm so sorry. Thank no, you. No, that's okay. Now that we're back, uh, so um, where where were we? I totally can't remember. Um, I think we were talking about when I was in a church, but was dissatisfied. Yeah, yeah, and and, and women roles. Um, I wrote a. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm shamelessly plugging plugging this in real quick. Um, I wrote a uh, post. Uh, I don't know how long ago now on on the blog on the whole concept of women in ministry and. 
um, even deeper than that, um, how we define ministry in the first place. And, and so maybe let's talk a little bit about, um, there's some other questions I want to get to, but maybe let's talk a little bit about um, the role of women in, in, in churches and, and how that has affected um, people, you know, their discontent with the church. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, and I, I ran across this. There's actually a lot of, of research backing this up as well, that um, especially in a Me Too era, mm-hmm. um, to to not be including women's voices at the table of leadership is, is becoming a, a liability and dangerous. And so, um, you know, I, I have people that I love and care about very deeply who disagree with me vehemently on this from a point of scripture. And um, so I don't really want to necessarily go into that because I think they're there's some really amazing resources out there that um, that help people understand from a biblical perspective why women should be um, serving in equal capacity with men and that we need to be working together. So I don't want to kind of go off on that at this point, but um, I do think that um, especially for where we're at in today's world, um, you know, when we take a, when we look at how God created us, like this is just sort of my view here is like God created um, the Imago Day of male and female working together and um, that Jesus re- restored that brokenness. And when we look at Jesus and the way that he interacted with women was so revolutionary for his time. And, um, you know, we're, we're coming up on Easter and the, the, the women were the ones who were faithful to the end. They were the ones that went to the cross with Jesus. They were the ones who were there at the tomb. They were the ones that were there when he rose again and and the first ones that he sent out, you know, they were the first evangelists, you know? So women, um, women's role is, is so vital from the beginning and throughout the gospels, we see them, um, you know, serving and, and along, listed alongside sometimes in, in passages. So it's like, to me, if we just look at it from a really simple perspective of how Jesus included women, um, how can we not do the same? Like, it, it just makes no sense to me. So, yeah. um, and I used to be really firmly of the opinion that women should not lead <laughs> because mm. I came from that world, you know? And so I, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people who, um, who disagree with me on this. And um, those are conversations I so much rather have like, face to face over coffee because I remember the, the the journey of coming to a point where I realized like just how vital um, my voice is, how vital my sister's voices are. And um, when women are involved at the same capacity in the same ways as men, it gives um, a fuller and richer meaning to our experience as Christ followers for men and women. And, um, you know, we, everybody suffers when any part of the body of Christ is being oppressed Hmm. and we need all of us. And, um, you know, it, we need, we just need everybody. We need all the parts of the body together. And that's kind of my dream (laughs) of seeing. And, um, there are pockets where that is happening and it's really exciting to see. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I do think this is an issue that, um, and in some circles and some parts of the body, like they're over this, like they're so beyond, like they're, they're yeah. off and running, like, you know, yeah. and I'm like, we're, we're sort of still pulling along some people, yeah. um, on this issue and that can be discouraging sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a, 
I'm Anglican now, and specifically in the Episcopalian American branch of the Anglican Church, and this isn't, like, this is just kind of an assumed thing at this point um, with the Anglicans. I think it's been since 19... I just, I just read this uh, last night. I think it's been since 19... I want to say 74, maybe 78, um, that women have been able to be ordained in the Episcopal Church. And so it's been, what is that, 40, 40 years at this point. And so it's kind of, it's not something that, um, I was thinking about like evolution this morning, like for certain groups and specifically the, the Anglican church, at least the Anglicans I'm around, it's, we don't even really talk about it because it's no longer an issue. It's just something that's kind of assumed. And I think women's role, women having an equal leadership role, I think is also one of those things in our church that is just assumed. But I think you hit on a really important aspect and um, and I have a really hard time of doing this uh, because I think I have more of a prophetic personality. So I always want to point out the negatives. I always want to do the critiquing. But I think you hit on a really important point and uh, I think that's that we need to have grace for those mm. that disagree with us. Um, especially when we came from their position. Um, I also came from growing up from a, uh, um, from a complementarian view of women, that women weren't supposed to be leaders, that they had their place in, in, in the church, and that was to ultimately to serve men in that, uh, in, in the household, men were the spiritual leaders and women were just supposed to su- submit. So, so I do think there is, that's a really important thing. Uh, a good reminder is that, you know, this is a place that we came from. And so we should have empathy um, because not having empathy with them is also not having empathy, I think, with our past selves. Um, yes. Which is, yeah. which doesn't, um, it almost like it separates our, our, our past from our present. Yes. And that's just not healthy. But the, the past and the present is, is integrated and yes. it flows together. And so I think, you know, having empathy for those who uh, hold positions that we used to is also having empathy for our past selves and and therefore having more of a holistic and integrated um, psyche or being, I don't know what you would call it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's something that I think is really important to, um, for all of us, no matter where we're at in our journey with deconstruction or reconstruction or what sort of uh, faith community we're a part of right now is that we do need to have compassion and grace. And um, the reintegration is so important. And I I get excited about that because I really see, um, I, I see and I feel the movement of the spirit pulling us toward this more holistic view of scripture, this more holistic view of ourselves, this whole more holistic view of time, the cosmos, I mean, like across the board. And um, so, yeah, when, when we've had such a fractured view of ourselves, we've separated out mind, body, spirit. We've seen those as three separate areas of life for so long. And I think people are more ready now than ever to start viewing that as through a more Trinitarian lens. Like it's a whole, it's three parts of a whole. We are whole people. And yes, we've been fractured and we've been broken, but God doesn't intend for us to just sit in that. Like he's wanting to reintegrate and bring us back into the fullness that he created us to have. And, um, even through views of scripture, like it, it's really exciting that I'm not a weirdo anymore when I talk about the whole narrative of scripture, the story of scripture, the story of God. 10, 15 years ago, I would get really weird looks for talking about the Bible that way. Um, you know, everybody was very, very focused on um, chapter and verse and um, 
you know, but now I feel like we're just in this time where um, people are looking at the, the story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation in tandem with creation and our own stories and like how God is moving through all of these ways all together at once. And then it doesn't have to be either or it can be both. And um, yeah, just, just so much more of a reintegration of seeing that, um, you know, this thing is huge <laughs> and mm-hmm. that we, we can't um, get hung up even on these little um, pieces of doctrine. And I'm not saying that doctrine is not important, but like there are just these issues that we're getting tripped up on. And it's like, you guys, we have work to do. This world that we are living in is so broken and so need of healing. It needs teaching and preaching as well. But healing is that missing piece that the church has neglected for a long time. And I feel like now is the time for us to reintegrate ourselves and the body of Christ and to bring that into teaching, preaching and healing. Cause you see that Jesus had all of those present in his yeah. ministry. So, yeah. um, I wanted to make a couple comments. You just said something that, that made me think of the Eastern Orthodox view of, uh, of, of sin. So, so you talked about, you know, there's this need for healing in the church. Um, I think part of the reason maybe we've done, and this is just me spitballing, but I think maybe part of the reason we've done such a bad job of focusing on healing and, and, and restoration. Um, one, I think is because the church tends to be Gnostic in America, but two in the Western church, both Protestant and Catholic our uh, our model of theology, um, for sin is, um, is a juridical model of theology, a juridical model of sin. So when we think of sin, we think of um, uh, it's kind of a metaphor of a, of a courtroom and a judge and saying you're guilty or you're innocent. And, and that's how sin and, and theology has been thought of, of in, in the West. But in the Eastern Church, um, it's much more relational, which gets into you know, Eastern cultures, both Jesus's culture and, and Middle Eastern culture even today, um, and just non-Western cultural in general, is, is much more, they don't focus on task or rules so much as they focus on relationship. And in the Eastern yes. church, you have, um, you don't have a juridical model of sin or theology. You have a therapeutic model of sin mm. and theology. So the metaphor that's thought of is not a courtroom with a judge declaring your innocence or your guilt. It is of a, uh, it's, it's a picture of a hospital and you are, uh, are in the hospital and, and, and sin is a sickness that has mm. infected you, and Christ is the doctor who is bringing healing and restoration to you. And and so oh, I, I think love that. maybe even you know a reintegration of the East and the West, and and and, yes. and learning some of those things that we have let go. I think mm-hmm. of in the West um, yeah. would bring you know a, a fresh perspective to even how we um, relate to one another. Um, in, in terms of trying to bring wholeness and restoration to the church yes, um, so as individuals much. and as, uh, as the church at large. The, the second thing I wanted to, to say, um, I wanted to go back to women and, 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 and women roles real quick and how that's handled in, in the Gospels. Because I just think, man, the Gospels are so radical when you know <laughs> how, they're, how they were read and how they were written and how they were heard in mm-hmm. their original context. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, you mentioned that women were the first ones at the tombs. They were the first ones that, that went to the disciples and said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. And that was a huge deal. We don't really, really think about that so much. Um, I 
Be, I, I was going to say because we think women are credible witnesses, but that's probably not entirely true. Um, just, you know, we could get into that. But, but basically, in, in the first century, women were not seen as credible witnesses. Um, right. So if a woman gave a testimony about something, she wasn't credible. You could say, well, she, you know, she's crazy, you know, she's, she's a woman, we don't have to listen to her. But the, so the fact that they present in the Gospels, they say the women were the first ones to see the empty tomb, and they were the ones, the first witnesses to, to the uh, male disciples, is, is huge. It's making a, a, a huge statement that women are credible witnesses. It's a very uh, empowering view um, of women. And then in the uh, story of Mary and Magdalene, sorry, not Mary and Magdalene, but Mary and Martha, uh, where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's two, uh, N.T. Wright points this out in his book, Surprised by Scripture. There's two, um, there's two huge cultural, uh, notions, cultural themes that we're not picking up because we're not from that culture. And the first one is that in the Middle East, in Jesus's day, as well as in most of the Middle East today, women and men can't hang out in the same part of the house. Dudes and, and girls don't hang out. Um, that was seen as is a socially inappropriate act. And so right. the fact that Mary's hanging out with the dudes means, you know, it was a huge um, slap to the, the social order, slap to the face for the social order, order of the day. Um, and Jesus was affirming that women and men can hang out in the same, yeah. uh, in the <laughs> same vicinity, which is huge and has huge implications for even today because the North American Mission Board, which is the Southern Baptist Domestic Mission Board, even to this day, women and men can't hang out by themselves if it's just one-on-one. Mm, um, yeah. And so, you know, obviously in, in that story, there are more than just Jesus and Mary, probably. But, but I, th- I think it still has those implications. And and the, the second thing that N.T. Wright points out that that story um, is teaching us that we, we don't know because we're not from that culture is that, um, which I want, I want to say this before I say it, is we have, I think, um, modern readers of scripture, we have an, the arrogance, I think, to say that we can just pick up scripture and we can expect that um, we don't have to do any hard work. We can mm. just pick it up and we can just read it and God is speaking to us right there in that moment. Um, and I don't want to say that, you know, Christ can't use scripture to speak through and in scripture um, to us in that particular moment. But we, I think there's a bit of arrogance when we say that this text was written to us. Um, and, and clearly, historically, that's just not true. It may be for us in a sense, but it was not written to us. And, and so, so anyway, so, so the second big thing that N.T. Wright points out is that um, the phrase that's used is Mary was sitting at the feet. Uh, which was a connotation, or it was an idiom in the first century. And the other place in scripture where we see that idiom used is in the book of Acts, where it says that Saul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And so the connotation of that idiom um, was that if someone sat at the feet of a rabbi because they were a disciple, that they themselves were in training to become a rabbi. So Mary... Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> is um so that text is is an egalitarian text it's saying that yep. women can be teachers um and then and one more one more thing i'll point out and then we'll get back to topic but um in, in the book of romans uh you know people i don't have a hierarchical view 
of leadership, um, but most people do. And so they tend to think of apostles as, oh, those are the big dogs. You know, there were only 13 apostles. And so they had the most authority. They're, they're the top of the food chain. Well, in, in the book of Romans um, and other places, it shows that there were more than 13 apostles. Um, but, but also in the book of Romans, it says that Junius, who is a female, Mm-hmm. was herself an apostle and so yep so i think you know this whole issue um whether you know whatever your view of scripture if you have a view of scripture where it's your you know primary authority and you know what scripture says is true and you have to you have to obey it um you can still come out with a different view of uh women in, in leadership and their roles if you just you know dig a little bit deeper and spend that hard work um doing the doing the hard work or spend that time doing the hard work and i and i think that you know um we have to ask ourselves do i because it seems like people are trying really hard um to push against women in leadership and so i think we have to ask ourselves is it because i'm sexist and i don't want women in leadership and so i'm gonna try my hardest to make Mm -hmm. the text say what i want it to yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to call it real quick if this is if this is okay. Um, going back to the metaphor, um, the Eastern versus Western metaphors, I think that that is a huge um, part of um, how to reintegrate all of this and how to um, address so much of the pain and the dissatisfaction that we've experienced with church and even with the Bible. Um, when you look at the way that um, Eastern cultures operate through more, they, well, we all operate through metaphor because our brains are wired for it. We can't get away from it. But um, when you change your metaphors, you change your life. Mm. And so um, just just that simple change today, like of somebody listening to this podcast and like hearing a hospital versus a courtroom, like that can really be life changing for people. And I think that we um, don't often realize that scripture is so full of those metaphors everywhere, like from start mm. to finish, that you can tell the story, the whole story of the Bible using just one metaphor, like like dirt. Think about dirt, creation to revelation. It's there or water or fire. Like you look at these things and it's all there. And um, when the reason I'm bringing this up is that um, for people who are detaching from church and feel broken away from God, um, a lot of it has to do with these images that we have of God. Mm. And um, I feel that this is something that that churches can start like if there's um, like ministry leaders out there that want to like start investigating, like, how do I solve this? Like, what can I do to, um, to start to bring healing to my church? I would say to start with your metaphors, like start Mm -hmm. with, um, and, and all of us can do this. We all can do this. What are my images of God? What are, what are the metaphors that I cling to? Do I view sin and my relationship with God through the metaphor of, for say, for instance, uh, a legal system? Um, that's not necessarily a bad metaphor, but it's been the primary metaphor that we've been given. And it's not the only one we have available. And so I think um, doing a part of doing that hard work <laughs> can also include addressing these root metaphors that we operate out of in our relationship with God because it affects every other relationship that we have. Mm. And so um, 
like for me, um, these metaphors uh, th that are becoming more relational. And um, I love that one of a hospital. That's one that I've often um, seen. And then um, also like um, viewing myself as a midwife to God, a midwife to the work of God, mm. like rather than I'm in the battlefield for God, I'm a midwife to God. Do you see like like those subtle differences in language and metaphor are truly like life altering if you start like on a daily basis, like sort of just shifting the way that we're that we're viewing how we work and operate in the world. And um, that's just like a practical thing that I think um, that if we all kind of started doing that, really examining um, what are the metaphors that we're living out of, because that really influences the way we think about God, the way we talk about God, the way that we do everything with each other. Oh man, I okay. So I just kind of had a my mind blown, and when you were talking about those two different metaphors of of our how the the metaphors that represent our ourselves in, in the world and in our participating in the work of God in the world, the metaphor of us on the battlefield versus the metaphor of uh, us as midwives. I think, oh my gosh, I was just thinking through. Um, those two different metaphors and the implications they have. Right. If, if you have the first metaphor that we're in a battlefield, then one, we're against the world. Yes. We're, we're going to violently oppose the world. Um, and, and no wonder why so many Christians are so, um, the first thought they have, you know, when, when, when we think about enemies, um, is let's, let's take, let's kill them. You know, let's, that's, <laughs> yeah. let's just get rid of them. And, um, and, and no wonder why that we also, we feel like we have to retreat from the world, that we right. have to be separate from the world because we have this metaphor of us in a, in a battlefield. And I also think that metaphor says that we are the ones doing the work. Yep. We're the ones doing the work. And, but the metaphor, the, the midwife, I think it changes that we're not the ones doing the work. The, 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 the person that's giving birth that the the mother is the one that's giving birth, the one that's doing the work, but we are there participating actively exactly. in the work that the mother is doing or the work that God yes. is doing. Um, yes. Yeah. So that just blew, I was thinking about the implications of those two metaphors, and um, right? man, I think that's great. Yeah, isn't it? Like, and it does. It changes everything. It changes. Um, you know. Uh, and there, there. I think there's a place for the battlefield metaphor. I think there is when when it comes to some things. But when it comes to the world, to loving our enemies, to um, participating in a world that feels like it's in opposition to us, um, this is where the the change in our viewpoint, the change in our internal metaphors, changes everything. Mm. Because then, when we're a midwife, I'm seeing this person in front of me who might be considered my enemy, and I'm looking at them instead through the eyes of like, okay, what is God birthing in this person right now? Where is God at work? Where is, where is he already working? Um, because if, if we truly believe what we say we believe about God and that he's omnipresent and that the spirit is alive and working everywhere around us, if we really believe that, then that means that even in, in the lives of a person that is my adversary or is being adversarial toward me, um, that God's still at work there somehow. Yeah. And so if, if then my role becomes uh, of a midwife, then, um, I, you know, I, I approach that with much more awe and wonder and respect. And, um, it becomes a very holy moment because in that moment, I am not there to win. I am there to love. Mm -hmm. I'm there to assist, to, um, to coach maybe if that, if I've earned the right in, in that person's life to do that. Um, 
so I mean, it does, it just, it truly changes everything. And, um, in it, I mean, it'll revolutionize like the way, I mean, I'd, I'll be excited to, to maybe talk with you a week from now <laughs> and see how has this metaphor shift affected you or somebody else listening to this podcast, like follow up, man. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like, um, and then when you start to read scripture through some of uh, those lenses as well and allow scripture to speak to you through that, um, I mean, it's just very powerful. It's mm-hmm. really powerful. And I don't think we can underestimate uh, the power of metaphor and how much it influences our daily interactions, the way we do everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if we're going to be healing, we need to start doing that more. Yeah. Man, I, I have questions and I, I don't want to get off topic. Um, I feel like maybe we have a little bit, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, and I've heard people say that um, sometimes people are, depending on what tradition, I've had, okay, I've had specifically a church, uh, a Southern Baptist church planter tell me that he didn't so much say I'm uncomfortable with metaphor, but in scripture, but there we were talking about uh, a particular epistle where Paul uses metaphor um, and he was just really uncomfortable with, um, mm. with the idea of Paul using metaphor because it, it was for some reason, um, it seemed like, oh, it, it can't be true or, mm. you know, um, it's not as tangible. I can't wrap my hands around it. Yeah. So have you, just real quick, have you encountered talking about how metaphor, how powerful it is and how it can impact your life? Um, and I, I think you're right. We, we use metaphor. We can't not use metaphor. But have <laughs> you encountered maybe that fear of metaphors, whether it's in scripture yeah. or? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been I haven't recently talked to anybody through that that's really oppositional to it. But, um, you know, I remember a time in my life when I was really um scared. I was scared by it. Um, because, um, we look at things as being either true or false. And, um, I had a professor in college who would say all truth is God's truth. And I do believe that. Um, what, what I've come to sort of realize now, I'm trying to think of what I would say to somebody who's really wrestling with that, um, because it is very different. Um, it's, it's much more right brained than left brained. And our, uh, church culture for the most part has done really well at left-brained um, theology and left-brained experiences of God where it's very logical it's very linear um, we need to reintegrate the right side of our brains the beauty the mystery um, they can coexist because our brains coexist right like mm-hmm. <laughs> we have yeah. a right and left brain um, these systems within our brain work in tandem and uh, metaphor is at the root of everything that we we do or say and so um, a metaphor is um, is not a uh, particular. A story is a t- like type of it, um, but uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this. Um, all language is metaphor. Like if you look at the letter T, um, the letter T is like two little lines that in and of themselves don't have a whole lot of meaning. Mm. But because our uh, English language, we've all agreed that that is a T, and it makes the sound. T- but um, <laughs> in and of itself, it, it, you know, it doesn't have like just by itself, you look at it, you're like, OK, but when we when we bring meaning to something, meaning uh, it begins to um, to shape the story of that um, symbol. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
there's a lot of really smart people out there that do a better job of explaining this than I do. But when you think um, about like infants and the way that they experience the world from birth, um, it's all through, uh, it's through these more, um, it's, it's not subconscious. I'm looking for the word. Um, it's, it's pre-symbolic. Hmm. So it's emotional, it's um, innate, it's uh, it's relational, it's um, it's all those deeper parts of ourself that are developing before language ever develops. Now the baby can communicate. The baby communicates through crying and and wailing, um, and then you know sometimes we get smiles and little babbles and things. Yeah. But that infant experiences the world um, as a whole. Uh, there's not a, a, an idea of an other yet. There is only um, this this world of um, of. It's you know, just the world. It's just one thing. It's just the world. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So only then, as we as we get older, do our brains start to form uh, the ability to use language because that's a symbolic. Uh, ability. We're then giving an outward expression to an inward reality. So words come last in our mental processes. Hmm. So all those mental processes happen at a much deeper level before they ever come out of our mouths as words. Mm. So um, this is why images are so powerful because um, and, and, and why sensory experiences are so powerful that involve more than just the spoken word um, or the written word is, uh, you know, when, when you have a full sensory experience that involves all five of your senses or six, there's people that would like to argue for more than just five senses. Um, you know, when you start to integrate all of those, I mean, that's just mind blowing. And so um, if, if we can look at, at scripture and metaphor uh, in a more holistic view and see that, um, that it's all part of the same thing in a way, um, trying to, to find a good way of, of expressing this, is that metaphor isn't about being true or false. It's just about meaning. Mm. It's about expressing truth. And truth is Jesus. And mm. um, Jesus is all over scripture. Jesus mm. is all over this world. Jesus is alive and well and living and uh, at work everywhere that we look. And so, um, you know, it, for people who are still kind of uncomfortable with the thought of metaphor, um, you know, I would say just just start uh, examining the way that you live out metaphors every day. Um, yeah. Again, language itself is symbolic because uh, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if that's helpful and maybe I, that'll do. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, um, I mean, metaphors clearly in scripture and multiple places that people, no matter how they interpret scripture, I can't think of like when Jesus describes his his uh, grief over Jerusalem and he describes himself as a mother hen that wishes right? that <laughs> Jerusalem as chicks would come on. Like nobody thinks like I've never heard anyone say Jesus is a mother hen. Like <laughs> everybody understands it's, that that's right. metaphor. So right. it's just so I, it's so deeply ingrained in scripture and, and the way we think. And uh, yep. so I think you're right. But um Anyway, yeah. so we should probably get back on track. So so let's do this third category real quick, and then I have one last question, and then anything that you want to add, um, and then we can wrap it up. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's great. Okay, so your third category, you're now in a church community, and you're satisfied. So tell us a little bit about that. Why are you in a church mm. community, and why are you satisfied being in that church community? Yeah. Um, when I was young, I... 
I think I was 14 or 15. I prayed. Are you in a church mm. community and why are you satisfied being in that church community? Yeah. Um, when I was young, it's really powerful because um, it's uh, about this particular church. They're finding ways to minister to our particular community. Um, and in so doing, they have a more universal impact. Um, I, I'm not. I've, I'm still relatively new to this this church, so I uh, am still learning sort of about the leadership styles and things like that. But they have women preaching. Um, it's not a big deal it, <laughs> that a woman's preaching, and I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Um, uh, and and they they do ministry in our community without slapping the church's name on it. It's not church marketing. Yeah. Um, they're not do, they're not ministering to homeless and other people facing these different challenges. They're not ministering to them as a way to advertise the church. Yeah. Um, they are doing it because it is their calling in Christ and, um, they're loving the neighbor and, and that's, that's it. And, um, so I, that appeals to me. Um, I think it's a great start. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot done in the way of addressing, um, issues with white supremacy yet, but again, I'm, I'm still kind of learning about the community. Um, there, are, there seems to be a pretty diverse, um, group of people that, that come and there are some offerings in, um, Spanish language. Um, and I think they even have small groups in, um, different Persian communities. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there seems I'm I'm sensitive to uh, the plight of the immigrant, and um, so they seem to be maybe touching into some of those areas that, and so I appreciate that as well. Um, and and I know that it's hard for, uh, and this is a large church. Smaller churches have a lot of um, difficulty um, with resources. And so larger church using their resources in these ways is very attractive to me. Yeah. Um, and it, and as I'm saying that, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this all sounds so consumeristic. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, like that is not what church is about. But at the same time, like for a family like mine, that for me to be able to worship with other believers, um, in a way that, um, is focused and for my son to have a, um, a group of kids that he can learn with from other adults who love him. Um, you know, that's pretty significant for me yeah. in the phase of life that I'm in right now. And, um, you know, I don't know if God will move us into a house church someday or, um, you know, I, I, I try to always be very open and hold these things with loose hands because I realize that the spirit of God moves in all sorts of different ways. And, yeah. um, in some ways I think Jesus did this to play a joke on me a little bit because I always said I would never, ever be a part of a mega church never ever I was so anti <laughs> and yet here I am like in a bigger church and so Jesus is like really can I not work in a mega church yeah. oh okay God yeah sorry my bad because um, <laughs> I've been very critical like vocally critical yeah. of mega churches and um and I've had to I, I've had a lot of uh humility had some humility in this um thankfully not humiliation but humility that I've had to embrace <laughs> not humiliation I, yet, we'll see. but you know um, as Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. You're fine. I, I was going to say, as, you know, I've gotten older, the doctrine and the incarnation is more and more meaningful to me and more and more practical because the doctrine of the incarnation ultimately says that, that this is the way God is. That God, if you look at Jesus, Jesus is fully human. He's fully Jewish. He lives in the first century. He's male. He has all these particularities about him. He's meeting people and their particular understanding of God and 
Um, he he meets people where they're at, but he also mm. critiques. Um, he yep. doesn't yep. let that stop him. So, you know, if, if, if God is really incarnational, then that means God's working with people where they're at. Um, and yeah. although um, I'm very highly critical of the megachurch too, um, but but if God is really incarnational, then even in a situation that's not ideal, even though megachurch may not be God's ideal, God mm-hmm. is still working there. His grace right. isn't like barred from yeah. working there. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm a huge house church guy. Um, if it was my say so um and everyone would listen to me i would just i'd be totally fine let's get rid of all our church buildings and just meet in houses and coffee shops and pubs but but you know people aren't going to do that and and jesus (laughs) is graceful and and is incarnational and is working in all sorts of different um uh, ways that people are doing church even in um in ways that may not be ideal so yeah yeah that you know that i totally get that and so i you, you, as you were talking about, um, you know, most churches aren't welcome to having children as part of the main gathering. I think that's so true, and I think that's something I've recognized. Um, I remember talking to the pastor that I was working with while I was in Seattle about house churches, and he made the critique of he he said, "Well, you know, in a house church, you have to have your kids with you," and mm-hmm. I was like, "What? What's what's the problem with that?" Like, yeah, right. Like. <laughs> Um, and so I think there is this, and, and I'm not saying just like that one experience means that everyone in America is like this, but I do think, you know, I've been in enough churches, I've been in enough different parts of the country. I do think, um, you look at how services are set up. Kids typically are not part of the main gathering with the adults. There's, there's this separation. So I wonder if, you know, you talked about integration earlier. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's one of the things we need to reintegrate is this yeah. multi-generational aspect of the church where we Absolutely. do have the toddlers and the six-year-olds and, and the teenagers and, and the, you know, millennials and, and the middle age and the old people all in one gathering. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. So anyway, that was kind of yeah. some no, of my I- thoughts. Yeah, and I think like the way that we've typically set up um, church, it it doesn't really allow for that. Um, And so you have to really uh, go down the rabbit hole a little bit with that when you start doing this uh, reintegration thing, especially when it comes to intergenerational, because it does, it gets a little messy. Mm. It gets a little loud. It gets a little uh, complicated. (laughs) And um, okay, well, is it worth it to do that then? I say yes. Um, I've been... uh, you know, I briefly was leading a little bit of a house church type um, situation and uh, just as an experiment. And yeah, having the kids, super distracting. But you know what? <laughs> yeah. That's okay because it's not about me. And what were they overhearing of the adult conversation? What we were doing is we were taking a metaphor and looking at the entirety of scripture through that metaphor for that night. And like on the bread night, we uh, we baked bread. We mm. literally, you know, made bread from scratch. And we're like, what are the ways that God works through this, like, what are the spiritual, like, sort of, I I hate using the word spiritual, but what are the applications and ways that we can see God through this process of yeast and, and, and using these ingredients together through the fire? Like there's, oh my gosh, there's so many cool conversations you can have around that. And then there's so much through scripture about Jesus is the bread of life. Mm. You know, it changes communion when you start seeing it, that it was a Passover Seder. 
And um, when you see the bread through that lens, like, oh my gosh, it's like mind blowing. And I had people in there who were um, various education levels. I had, um, you know, it was a small group. We had people who, you know, maybe, maybe finished high school. We had people who were finishing doctoral programs and yet it resonated with every one of us and the kids, they got to oversee. And so they have a visual experience with this bread and Jesus is, is bread. And, um, you know, if, if you can get the kids to understand something, um, it's the adults that we have to sort of be willing to become like a child in those moments. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Jesus said that is, um, because sometimes we make things so much more complicated than they need to be. And yes, things are complicated and they're simple. They're, they're both. And, um, but yeah, I mean, and, and so you have to start completely redoing the way you do church. And I think for some people, they're not quite ready for that yet. Um, but for those that are like, man, go full tilt, like embrace it, find ways of, um, being the body together, um, that are not super structured, that are, uh, you know, a little bit more conversational, relational. And there's lots of people doing that uh, across the world right now. And they're, um, they don't have success by the way that we've traditionally defined success. And I think that's awesome because, um, they are seeing true movements of the spirit of God and they're experiencing, um, Jesus in, in ways that, um, have been really meaningful. And, um, when you, but, but again, it's not glamorous. It's not, um, something you're going to be able to throw up on a church sign and call attention to, or do a webcast of it's very gritty. It's very messy. It's very mundane and it's very holy. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. So one last question, all that's been great, but one last question. So, and then, and then you can, you know, throw out whatever you want. Um, that sounded like a bad thing say anything you want and then and then we'll, we'll wrap up from there so okay. how do you define church how do i define church i define church as the body of christ and when i say that i mean people who follow jesus who are in indwelt with the holy spirit embodying jesus in their particular place and by that we then have the the universal body of Christ in all places as we do that together. Great. Awesome answer. Okay. <laughs> so a, a, a plus. No, um, no, it's not being graded. Um, so is there anything else you, you'd like to say? Um, any comments? Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, I've just been really um, honored to be able to have this conversation with you. It's been awesome. And um, I'm excited to see, you know, where God is taking us as a body of Christ um, in the future. Things might get a little hard and messy um, and scary even, but we just all need to remember that he is with us. He is with us mm. um, and that we are with each other. Um, and for us to find ways to, um, really embrace each other and embrace that, um, because there's a lot of work that is going undone, um, when we're so focused on our own dissatisfaction, um, and we need to find ways to work through that and to heal, um, because the, uh, we're needed, um, this world needs us as midwives to the work of God. 
Well, that's good. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story um, and your experiences with church. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we will end this podcast now. So thanks for listening to the Misfits Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed and hope to see you back soon.